Chapter 65 of Consuelo. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Christine Rucker, December 29, 2021, Westford, Massachusetts. Consuelo by Georges Sand. Chapter 65. Consuelo had slept thus about three hours, when she was aroused by another noise than that of the fountain and the warbling birds around her. She half opened her eyes without having power to rise or well knowing where she was, and saw at two paces distant a figure leaning over the rocks, drinking, like herself, without much ceremony from the stream, by dipping his mouth into the water. Her first feeling was one of terror but a further glance at the companion of her retreat restored her confidence. For whether he had had leisure to observe her features while she slept, or perhaps that he was not much interested in the matter, he appeared to take little notice of her. Besides, he was rather a boy than a man. He appeared about fifteen or sixteen years of age at most, and was little, lean, sallow, and weather-beaten, while his countenance which was neither handsome nor otherwise, expressed only calm indifference. By an instinctive movement, Consuelo drew down her veil, thinking that if the traveler troubled himself so little about her, it would be better to appear to sleep than run the risk of provoking troublesome questions. Through her veil, however, she closely observed the unknown, expecting every moment that he would take up his knapsack and stick to continue his journey. But she soon discovered that he was resolved to rest also, and even to breakfast, for he opened his bag and took out a huge lump of bread, which he gravely cut and began to eat, casting from time to time a timid glance toward the sleeper, and taking care to make no noise in opening and shutting his knife, as if he feared to awaken her suddenly. This mark of respect inspired Consuelo with perfect confidence, and the sight of the bread, which he ate with such relish, aroused the pangs of hunger. Being assured from the careless attire and dusty shoes of the youth that he was a poor traveler and a stranger in the country, she believed that Providence had sent her unexpected aid by which she ought to profit. It was an immense hunch, and the boy, without stinting his appetite, could spare her a morsel. She rose, therefore, pretended to rub her eyes as if she had just awakened, and looked boldly at the youth in order, if needful, to keep him within bounds. This precaution was unnecessary. As soon as the boy saw the sleeper standing up, he became uneasy, cast down his eyes, and at length, encouraged by the sweet and gentle expression of Consuelo's countenance, he ventured to look at her and address her in a tone of voice so mild and harmonious that she was immediately prepossessed in his favor. "'Well, mademoiselle,' said he, smiling, "'you are awake at last.' You slept so soundly that only for the fear of being rude I would have followed your example. If you are as kind as you are polite, replied Consuelo, assuming a maternal tone, you can render me a slight service. 
anything you please, replied the young traveler, to whom Consuelo's voice seemed equally agreeable and penetrating. You must sell me some bread for breakfast then, if you can do so without inconvenience to yourself. Sell you some, he exclaimed, surprising and blushing. Oh, if I had a breakfast worth offering, I should not sell it. I am not an innkeeper, but I will give it to you with all my heart. You shall give it then, on condition, that you take in exchange something to buy a better breakfast. No, no, he replied, by no means. Are you jesting? Are you too proud to accept a bit of bread? Alas, you see I have nothing else to offer you. Well, I accept it, said Consuelo, holding out her hand. Your kindness makes me blush for my pride. Here, here, my dear young lady, exclaimed the young man joyously. Take the bread and cut it for yourself. Do not hesitate, for I am not a great eater, and I have had sufficient already for the whole day. But will you have an opportunity of purchasing more? Is not bread to be had everywhere? Eat, then, if you wish to oblige me. Consuelo did not require to be asked again, and fearing that she might otherwise seem ungrateful to her host, she sat down beside him and began to eat with a relish which the most dainty food at the tables of the rich had never given her. "'What a good appetite you have,' said the boy. "'Ah, I am so glad to have met you. It makes me quite happy to see you eat. Take it all. We shall soon come to some house or other,' although the country here seems a desert. You are not acquainted with it, then? said Consuelo in a careless tone. This is the first time I have traveled it, although I know the way from Vienna to Pilsen, which is the road I have just come, and by which I am now about to return yonder. Where? To Vienna? Yes, Vienna. Are you also going there? Consuelo, uncertain whether she should accept her companion as a fellow traveler, pretended not to hear him in order to gain time for a reply. Pshaw! What am I saying? replied the young man. A young lady like you would not be going alone to Vienna. However, you are on a journey, for you too have a parcel and are on foot like myself. Consuelo determined to evade this question until she saw how far she might trust him, and hit upon the plan of replying to one question by asking another. "'You are from Pilsen, then?' she inquired. "'No,' replied the boy, who had no motive for distrust. "'I am from Roran, in Hungary. My father is a cartwright there.' "'And why do you travel so far from home? You do not follow your father's trade, then?' I do and I do not. My father is a cartwright. I am not. But he is also a musician, and I aspire to become one. A musician? That is a noble calling. It is perhaps yours also? You are not going, however, to study music at Pilsen, which is merely a dull, fortified town. Oh no, I have been entrusted with a commission for that quarter, and I am now on my way back to Vienna, to endeavor to gain a livelihood while I continue my studies. Which have you embraced, vocal or instrumental music? Both, up to the present time. I have a tolerable voice, 
and I have a poor little violin by which I can make myself understood. But my ambition is great, and I would go yet further. Become a composer, perhaps? You have hit it. There is nothing in my head but this weary composition. I shall show you in my traveling bag a famous companion. It is a book which I have cut in pieces in order to be able to carry some portions of it with me over the country. When I am tired walking, I sit down in some corner and read a little. That refreshes me. It is well done. I would wager that your book is the gratis ad parnissum of Fuchs. Precisely. Ha! I see you are acquainted with it, and I am now sure that you are also a musician. Just now, while you slept, I looked at you and said to myself, that is not a German countenance. It is from the South, Italian perhaps, and what is more, it is the countenance of an artist. It was for that reason you made me so happy by asking me for bread. I now perceive that you have a foreign accent, although no one could speak better German. You might be deceived. You have not a German countenance either. Your complexion is Italian, and yet... Oh, you are very kind, mademoiselle. I know I have the complexion of an African, and my companions in the choir of St. Stephen used to call me the Moor. But to return to what I was saying, when I found you sleeping alone there in the middle of the wood, I was a little surprised. Then a hundred ideas occurred to me respecting you. It is, perhaps, thought I, my happy star which has led me hither to meet one who may be of use to me. But shall I tell you everything? Say on without fear. Observing that you were too well-dressed and too fair for a poor wayfarer, but that you had a bundle with you, I imagine that you might be connected with some stranger, an artist perhaps, oh, a great artist, she whom I seek and whose protection would be my glory and my happiness. Come, mademoiselle, tell me the truth. You are from some neighboring castle, and you have been on business in the vicinity. You must surely know the castle of the giants. You mean Reisenberg? And are you going there? At least I am trying, but I have so lost myself in this abominable wood in spite of the directions which they gave me at Klatau, that I do not know whether I shall be able to find my way out of it. Happily, you know Reisenberg, and you will have the goodness to inform me if I am still far from it. But what are you going to do at Reisenberg? I wish to see the Porporina. Indeed, and Consuelo fearing to discover herself to a traveler who might speak of her at the castle of the giants, recovered herself sufficiently to ask with an indifferent air, And who is the Porporina? Do you not know? Alas, you must be indeed a stranger in this country. But since you are a musician and know the name of Fuchs, without doubt you are acquainted with that of Porpora. And do you know Papora? Not yet. It is because I wish to know him that I seek to obtain the protection of his famous and beloved pupil, the Signora Poporina. Tell me how this idea came into your head. I might perhaps assist you to find her out. I shall relate my history. I am, as I have already told you, the son of a cartwright, 
and a native of a small town on the confines of Hungary. My father is sacristan and organist in the village. My mother, who had been cook to the lord of our district, has a fine voice, and my father, to refresh himself after his work, used to accompany her in the evenings on the harp. In this manner, a love of music was instilled into me, and I recollect that my greatest pleasure when I was quite a child was to join our family concerts with a bit of wood which I sawed with a lathe, fancying all the while that I held a violin and bow in my hand and drew from it the most magnificent sounds. Oh yes, it still seems to me, even yet, that my dear sticks were not dumb, but that a divine voice unheard by others floated around me and intoxicated me with celestial melody. Our cousin Frank, who was a schoolmaster at Hamburg, came to see us one day when I was playing on my imaginary violin and was amused at the kind of ecstasy in which I was plunged. He assured my parents that it was the indication of extraordinary talent, and he brought me with him to Hamburg, where he gave me a very rude musical education, I assure you. What fine organ stops with beats and flourishes he executed with his conducting baton on my fingers and ears. Nevertheless, I was not discouraged. I learned to read and write. I had a real violin, which I learned the use of, as well as the rudiments of singing and the Latin language. I made as rapid a progress as was possible with so impatient a master as my cousin Frank. I was about eight years old when chance, or rather providence, in which as a good Christian I have always believed, led me to the house of my cousin Ruder, chapel master of the cathedral at Vienna. I was presented to him as a little wonder, and when I had read with ease a piece at first sight, he took a fancy to me, brought me to Vienna, and took me into St. Stephen as one of the choir. There we had about two hours' work each day, and the rest of the time being at our own disposal, we could wander about as we pleased. But my passion for music stifled in me the idleness and playfulness of childhood. When sporting in the square with my companions, the moment I heard the sound of the organ, I left them to enter the church and delight myself by listening to the hymns and the music. I forgot myself in the streets beneath windows from which issued the sounds of a concert or even those of an agreeable voice. I was at once curious and desirous to know and understand everything which struck my ear. Above all, I wished to compose. When I was thirteen, I dared, without knowing any of the rules, to write a mass, which I showed to our master, Ruder. He laughed at me and advised me to learn before attempting to create. That was easily said, but I had no means of paying a master. My parents were too poor to advance the needful sums for my support and education. At last one day they gave me six florins, with which I bought the book which you see, and that of Matheson, which I began to study with ardent delight. My voice improved and was considered the most beautiful in the choir. Amidst all this uncertainty and ignorance, I felt my mind enlarge and my ideas developed themselves within me. 
but I saw with terror the period approaching when, according to the rules of the chapel, I should be obliged to leave the establishment. And beholding myself without resources and without masters, I asked myself if these eight years of study were really to be my last, and if I must return to my parents to learn the trade of a cartwright. To add to my vexation, I saw that Master Ruder, in place of taking an interest in my welfare, treated me with increased severity and only sought to hasten the period of my dismissal. I know not why he disliked me, but I certainly did not deserve it. Some of my companions were silly enough to say that he was jealous of me because there was some degree of genius in my compositions and that he was accustomed to hate and discourage young people who promised to surpass himself. I am far from having the vanity to accept this explanation as the true one, but doubtless he looked upon me as a brainless fool for having the presumption to show him my crude essays. And besides, said Consuelo, interrupting him, old teachers do not like to see their pupils appear to understand faster than they do themselves. But tell me your name, my child. I am called Joseph. Joseph what? Joseph Hayden. I will endeavor to recollect this name so that if one day you should turn out a distinguished man, I shall know what to think of the hatred of your master and the interest with which you inspire me. But proceed if you please. Young Hayden resumed his narrative in the following words, while Consuelo, struck by the similarity of their artistic and poverty-stricken destiny, looked attentively at the countenance of the young chorister. His insignificant, sallow countenance became singularly animated during his recital. His blue eyes sparkled with genial fire, and everything he said and did bespoke no ordinary mind. End of chapter 65